welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we head north. North of the border, that is, starting from iconic Niagara Falls. We'll hike 900 kilometers north from Niagara Falls along a diverse and challenging trail. That is Canada's oldest and longest marked footpath. The trail traverses the Niagara Escarpment, and though it is in wilderness, it also passes not too far from Toronto, and ultimately ends up on a peninsula in Lake Huron on Georgian Bay. On this episode, we'll hear about a thru-hike where the entire hike was done sleeping each night in a camper van. Wait, how is that possible? You'll have to listen to find out. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Bruce Trail in Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the show, everyone. Don't forget to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com with ideas for future episodes. Also, please follow us on Instagram at trailsworthhikingpodcast. I also want to remind you that if you have hiked a trail that you were inspired by this show to hike, please let me know. And if you do that, I will feature you on our Walking the Walk segment, and we can put some of your photos on the Instagram account. On this episode, our guest is Alicia Rubishov from the blog Alicia Hikes. Alicia is an Ontario, Canada-based writer, and she thru-hiked the Bruce Trail with her mother, which is a really interesting thing to have done, and you'll hear all about it in my conversation with Alicia. So the Bruce Trail is the first trail that we've covered in the province of Ontario, Canada, On this show, I'd like to cover trails that are in as many states, provinces, national parks, regions, and countries as possible. And having hiked trails in lots of different kinds of ecological environments, lots of different countries, I'm convinced that all of the world has something to offer the walker who is willing to observe and to learn. And as much as I love the iconic mountain ranges of the world, and particularly those of the American West, Those are not the only places worth hiking. So I'd like to cover as much as we can on this show. And this really long trail in Ontario, Canada was intriguing to me. It really does push the limits of what we typically cover on this show as far as distance and time to accomplish the hike. But I think you'll really enjoy this episode and get a lot out of hearing all about this region and this particular hike that Alicia undertook with her mother. To hear another episode about a long-distance hike in the Great Lakes region, I recommend episode 8 about the Superior Hiking Trail. All right, let's jump into this episode about a trail across the Niagara Escarpment. But first of all, what is an escarpment? So that is a geologic feature that is really a long, gently sloping ridge of rock that is gradually sloped on one side, but has a sharper drop-off on the other side. This escarpment goes 900 kilometers from Niagara Falls in the south part of the escarpment, where the cliff is, and then goes to the town of Tobermory in Ontario on the northern end. 
The escarpment itself does continue and sort of wraps around the Great Lakes and back in through Michigan and Wisconsin. It will be focused on the part of it that is in Ontario. The escarpment rises up 500 meters from sea level, so about 1,700 feet. It starts in western New York and goes across southern Ontario to the Bruce Peninsula. The escarpment was formed 400 million years ago. It's made of limestones, dolostones, shales, and sandstones, so really ancient seafloor. Over the past 250 million years ago, it has shaped into the escarpment that it is today through erosion. And this is really unequal erosion that gives it the shape of an escarpment, most recently from several ice ages. It has rock cliffs, waterfalls, underwater caves, and even 1,000-year-old eastern white cedar trees. It's the longest natural corridor in densely populated south-central Ontario. The escarpment has some degree of protection by the Niagara Escarpment Plan, which is a conservation and development kind of plan that was put in place in 1985. Since 1990, the escarpment has been a UNESCO World Biosphere Reserve. And this means it's an area designated for reconciling, conserving biodiversity, and sustainable development, according to UNESCO. And these are considered places where methods to learn about how to do this can be tested. So let me translate UNESCO's definition into my words. This is a place we want to be able to use without screwing it up. The escarpment has the headwaters of five major river systems running through it. Coming out of one of those river systems is one of the most famous waterfalls in the world, which flows off the escarpment close to the southern terminus of the Bruce Trail. And that is, of course, Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls was carved at the end of the last ice age, about 12,000 years ago. So in geologic time, Niagara Falls are relatively young. Niagara Falls are actually a group of three separate falls on the border between Ontario and New York. Horseshoe Falls on the border is the biggest and the most famous and the one you think of when you think of Niagara Falls. The other two falls are on the U.S. side. Measured by flow rate, Horseshoe Falls is the most powerful waterfall in North America. Because of its annual freezing and thawing with water getting into the rocks of the riverbed there, the falls keep eroding, and the cliff is moving slowly backward from the erosion, and thus the falls move ever so slightly upstream as it erodes. Niagara Falls was first found by a European in 1678 by a French priest. In 1804, Napoleon's younger brother Jerome honeymooned at Niagara Falls, and he is credited with starting the tradition of honeymooners going to Niagara Falls, which continues today. The falls became even more popular once the railroad came into existence because it brought lots of tourists to the area. In 1895, the power of the falls was harnessed as the first large-scale hydroelectric generator project was built there. And Nikola Tesla himself was able to devise a system to transmit the power from the falls to Buffalo, New York. Even today, the falls generate a lot of electricity, and they actually divert more of the water at night. So they reduce the flow of the falls at night and divert the water to generate power. They don't want to do it during the day because it would make the falls not look as impressive, and they want visitors to be able to enjoy the natural beauty of the falls. So they are 
diverted more often at night and in the winter when there are less visitors to generate electricity. This trail works its way up the escarpment toward what is called the Bruce Peninsula. The Bruce Peninsula is an arm of land that divides Lake Huron and Georgian Bay from the rest of the lake. Georgian Bay is 190 kilometers long, which is about 120 miles, and 80 kilometers wide, which is about 50 miles. It's about 80% the size of Lake Ontario. It's often called the Sixth Great Lake. If Georgian Bay were its own lake rather than a bay that is part of Lake Huron, it would be the fourth largest lake entirely within Canada. There are two national parks on the Bruce Peninsula and more than a half dozen nature reserves. Bruce Peninsula National Park is in the heart of the UNESCO Biosphere Reserve area. That park was established in 1987, and it has a lot of day use and even more camping that happens there. I've mentioned this on previous episode, but like in many other places, this park was established in a settled landscape. So there was some compromise that had to be struck in being able to create a national protected area where people were already living. So there is some development and roads within the park. And as you might imagine, there was some tension in determining the boundaries of what to protect. And even today, more than 20% of the land within the park is privately owned. As we've talked about before, conserving land can be messy and however beneficial to nature, it can also disrupt the lives of specific individuals who live in the area. So as I said, lots of compromises have to be made to achieve the best conservation possible, but also to take into account the needs of people living there. There's lots of wildlife along the Bruce Peninsula, including black bear, fishers, which is a weasel-like carnivore, squirrels, bats, fox. There's a type of rattlesnake. There's red-shouldered hawk, barrel owl, and yellow-spotted salamander, to name a few of the animals that are found on the Bruce Peninsula. There's also lots of wildflowers and ferns and orchids. In fact, there are 44 different species of orchids on the Bruce Peninsula alone. Across the entire escarpment, there's an incredible amount of biodiversity of ecosystems. There's Carolinian forest, there's coniferous forest of white cedar, white pine, and white spruce. There are meadows, there are alvars. Yeah, I had to look it up. I didn't know what that was. An alvar apparently is a flat limestone bedrock with little or no soil. There's also deciduous forest of maple, beech, oak, hickory, birch, and aspen. There's cliffs and crevices along the escarpment, or I guess along the sides of it, I would imagine. And that's where you have some cave-dwelling animals like bats. There's also wetlands and streams. So it's an incredibly diverse place ecologically and environmentally, and you can see why it has been named a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve. One thing that occurred to me is the name seems a bit odd. Why is it called the Bruce Peninsula? And I was wondering, is there some guy named Bruce, thinking it might be a first name? There is a guy named Bruce, but it was his last name. So who was James Bruce, and why is the Bruce Peninsula called that? James Bruce was the 8th Earl of Elgin and the 12th Earl of Kincardine. He was a British member of Parliament for Southampton in 1841. But soon after that, he held one interesting and significant post abroad after another, from 1842 to 1846, he was the governor of Jamaica. From 1847 to 1854, 
pertinent to this story, he was the governor general of the province of Canada. And then in 1857, he became the high commissioner and plenipotentiary in China and the Far East. In that role, he did some pretty controversial, when let's just say, to be honest, awful things, including ordering the destruction of the old summer palace in Beijing, which was a huge cultural loss to China. After that, he was the Viceroy of India starting in 1862. But in 1863, he died at age 52. He had a heart attack while crossing a swinging rope and wood bridge over a river while he was in India. In any event, there are numerous places in Ontario named after James Bruce, not just the trail and the peninsula, but also the towns of Kincardine and Port Elgin and Elgin and Bruce counties. There are also towns named after him in Nova Scotia and other things such as roads named after him in India, Singapore, and Hong Kong. But let's now talk about people on the Bruce Peninsula, but going much, much further back. People have lived in the area for more than 10,000 years. We don't necessarily know who lived there for most of that time, but if you look at the early woodland period from 1000 BC to 1080, that is the period where it was inhabited by the Saugeen Ojibwe people. This is a group of peoples also called the Chippewas. The Chippewas did share the area with the Wyandotte people, so they weren't the only native group there. And then at one point during the 1600s, the Iroquois moved into the Bruce Peninsula. This led to some conflict. The Ojibwa trading parties were attacked, and then reprisals followed. And at one point, there was a, a fierce battle at Saugeen, where the Iroquois ultimately had to flee. And those captured had their heads cut off and piled in a pyramid. And as a result, this battle has been called the Battle of Skull Mound. So not always peaceful there on the Bruce Peninsula among the peoples who existed before European settlers. When the French arrived, they referred to the people there as the Huron. And this is where the name for Lake Huron came from. After the War of 1812, the U.S. expelled a number of native peoples and they ended up moving to the area, coming across the border from the United States. So there's been some fluidity over the centuries as to who lived there. And even today, there are lawsuits being litigated over land rights between native peoples and European Canadians. So it is an ongoing story as to who has what rights with respect to living on the Bruce Peninsula. The idea for the Bruce Trail itself came about in 1959 from Ray Lowe's. Ray Lowe's was concerned about the development in the area that was happening, and he came up with the idea of a footpath covering the entire Niagara Escarpment. He wanted to inspire people to want to protect the escarpment, and he thought the best way to do that was to get people out on the trail. And I happen to agree with Ray. Uh, This has been my method of contributing to conservation with this podcast and among my family and friends, which is to show them the wilderness and to show them what these natural areas have to offer, and let them decide for themselves that it's worth protecting. At the time, no trail of this size had been built in Canada, and Lowe's and a small group of others got landowner support, and in 1962, they began to establish regional clubs along the length of what would be the trail. The clubs would be responsible for construction, getting more landowner support, and basically everything else that happened within their region. 
1963, they formed the Bruce Trail Association, which in 2007, the name was changed to be called the Bruce Trail Conservancy. The trail opened in 1967. Today, the Bruce Trail Conservancy is one of Ontario's largest land trusts, and its mission is to conserve, restore, and manage the land along the escarpment, and of course to manage the trail, working with the nine regional Bruce Trail clubs. All right, so with that background, let me first remind you about our sponsor before we jump into the interview. Our sponsor is Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore makes delicious vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals. Although, as I always say, you don't need to be a vegetarian or vegan to love these meals. They have quality ingredients, lots of calories. They are packaged conveniently for boil in a bag cooking, where all you need to do is add hot water, stir, and seal the package for 10 minutes to have a delicious backpacking meal. You can get 10% off your order at Outdoor Herbivore with the discount code TWH10P, Trailsworth Hiking 10%. Outdoor Herbivore ships worldwide. So even if you live outside the United States, you can order Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals. Why not get some chickpea sesame zeti or some lemongrass Thai curry or some blackened quinoa or the naked freckled burrito? Who wouldn't want something called a naked freckled burrito? So please check them out, Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. Thanks again to Outdoor Herbivore for sponsoring the show. All right, with that, let's jump into my conversation with Alicia Rubishaw about the Bruce Trail. Alicia Rubishaw, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell me about your blog, Alicia Hikes. Yeah, so I started the blog mostly because I found other people's trail reports so helpful. And same with gear reviews. I, there's a couple of websites in particular that I go in on pretty hard whenever I'm looking for gear. And so I just wanted to kind of contribute to that community and be a resource for other people in the same way that other people were a resource for me. What kind of resources are you providing primarily? Um, so trail reporting is kind of... What I've been doing, um, I've got one up there on the Western Uplands and Algonquin, and then I have most of my series of Bruce Trail blogs up there as well, which are broken up by the section of the Bruce that I was hiking at the time. Okay. And just, I guess, because you mentioned it, what are the uh, couple of review sites that you think are ones that people might want to check out? Oh, um, Outdoor Gear Lab is one that I use a lot. Um, there might be one other one, but I forget what it's called. It comes up, though, if you when you're typing in like a particular gear item and then reviews, they come up pretty readily. But I think Outdoor Gear Lab is like the main one that I kind of always check. Yeah, that's one that I use a lot as well. So you mentioned a couple of locations. And for listeners who are not from Canada, tell me a little bit about where you live and where you're from. Right. So I live in Ontario. I grew up kind of in the Ottawa Valley area, but I live in Peterborough now. Uh, and the Bruce Trail runs from Niagara, which is, you know, popular as a tourist location, Niagara Falls, and then runs all the way up to Tobermory, up the peninsula into Georgian Bay. And so it's it's about, at least according to the guidebook, it's 911 kilometers, but that varies as the trail changes. <laughs> But yeah, it's a huge stretch of Ontario, <laughs> or it felt like a huge stretch of Ontario. Yeah, that's a pretty big stretch of anywhere. <laughs> that's a significant yeah. <laughs> hike. How did you originally get into hiking and backpacking? Um, so 
I kind of proposed to my mom back in, I think, 2018 or maybe a little earlier that we go on a backpacking trip. And she had already done uh, about 700 kilometers of the Camino through Spain. Um, so she, you know, wasn't a stranger to a long hike, but she hadn't done any backpacking, like full camping gear. You know, you're out in the middle of nowhere on your own. Um, and so we decided we wanted to try that together. And I kind of thought it made a lot more sense to go on an outdoor adventure every year or multiple times every year than to spend about the same amount of money on like a single Europe trip. Because <laughs> I know that's the popular thing. People like to do the like, even if it's a backpacking trip through Europe, people love that. But, you know, I've been a couple places. I've been to London. I've been to Spain. But I, I really just wanted to be able to do something affordable whenever I wanted. And I like the idea of a challenge. It's, you know, that type two fun or whatever. <laughs> type two fun. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this was something that's more recent than for you to get into doing these kinds of outdoor adventures. Uh, well, we've been doing it every year since then. But yeah, it's not too, too many years now, just 2018 being the first one. And then every year since we've done something, whether that's a backpacking trip or like a car camping trip with a bunch of day hikes, we've always gone out and done something with each other each year. And so how did you end up deciding to do the Bruce Trail? I heard about the Bruce from a staff person at my like local adventure outfitter, Wild Rock. I think I was just buying gear for an, a smaller backpacking trip and they brought up the trail. I don't even remember how it came up, but I just remember being like, oh, I need to look this up and I might need to do this because it's a long trail. We don't have a ton of long trails in Canada. I mean, there's like the Trans Canada Trail, which goes all the way across, but it's, you know, it goes through everything. It's I don't really think of it like it's a lot of it's paved or like gravel. I don't really think of it in the same way as like a hike. Um, people have done the whole thing and that's great. And I might try and do it someday too. But I was more interested in the Bruce just because of how beautiful the terrain is. Like if you look on, you know, Instagram or online, there's just endless beautiful photos of places like the grotto up in the peninsula. And it's just, yeah, I, got, I just got really excited really quickly <laughs> as soon as I learned about it and dove deep. Well, that's great to hear. And, you know, it's a lot of people who are not probably listening to this podcast, when they hear about a 900 kilometer trail, they don't get excited the way you just described. <laughs> but I guess for those of us that uh, like to hike, something like that um, is great to find out that there is a trail that's especially so close to home for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just a drive away. <laughs> so what did you end up doing to plan the hike? Um, so oh, I did a ton of stuff. I bought the great little guidebook. There's the edition 30 of the maps and trail guide, uh, which is just a great resource. It's a binder that has all 42 maps in it and they all come out of the binder and there's a little sleeve you put them in. So the having that was amazing. I also, again, used a lot of blogs. A lot of people have already written about the Bruce. And so I spent a long time diving into that stuff. I also made a lot of use of the Facebook group. There's a couple of Bruce Trail Facebook groups. And I think I'm in kind of the main one, the first one you're likely to find if you're looking for it. But I was also in the Trail Angels of the Bruce Facebook group, which sprung up out of COVID, actually, because a lot of the there were some formal trail angel networks that existed before COVID. And then it all kind of got shut down, but people wanted to keep doing it. And so this group sprung up and it was 
huge for me. I found so many people that supported us through that group. So that was a big thing. And then the other thing I've done did with planning is that spreadsheets. I love spreadsheets. <laughs> I have like all my equipment in a spreadsheet. I had all of our parking locations because we'll get into this, but uh, we did the we did it in the van uh, rather than like a full through hike where we're camping all the way. And that's because the Bruce, it's illegal to camp. It's trespassing to camp most places. Yeah. So for a number of reasons, we decided to use the van as our support vehicle. Um, so I had a whole itinerary of where to park each day, which ended up changing dramatically, but uh, it was a good starting point for us. The other thing that you had that was interesting to me that I wanted to hear about before you started out this hike is that you had involvement from the Canada Council for the Arts. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that came about uh, because I'm a writer. I've been a professional artist for a number of years now. And so I'm no stranger to the granting system. I've gotten some small grants from Ontario Arts Council in the past. Uh, but this was my first time applying for a big one for, Ca for Canada Council for the Arts. And the first time it was rejected, actually. Uh, we got turned down in the first year I applied. And I think COVID, again, was a factor in that, potentially, because, because of how reliant we were on Trail Angels. I think they probably saw that and were like, oh, we don't want you in a bunch of people's cars every day for, you know, a couple of months. So... Um, I think that might have been why it was denied the first time, although it's also just like a total crapshoot arts funding. I'm not sure how aware you are of that world, but it's very competitive and you never know who's going to be on the jury. So it's very hard to guess whether you're going to get something or not. But I got very lucky and got the the big grant for my Bruce Trail project. And so the idea with, was that I would write a book. I would write a multidisciplinary book of poetry, prose and photography. And it would be mostly about the journey and my relationship with my mother, who was along with me for the ride. <laughs> and so how is that project going? Um... It's going slowly, if I'm being totally honest. It's it's very hard to write about. I think I took a lot of time just processing the trip. It was very hard. I'm not going to lie. A long trail every day, like day in, day out, is not easy on the body, the mind, like anything. And so, yeah, it was it was a lot. There were so many stories. And I managed to like keep a notebook of, you know, kind of a, a page a day, basically. And that was all I was able to write while we were on the trip. I thought when I was applying that I would be writing constantly and I would have all of this material and that I would be able to come out of the trip with just like editing work to do and just kind of stitch it together and make it nice. But I am still working on getting those poems out. It's It's been a bit of a slog, but I'm still very committed to the project, obviously, and I will definitely see it through. Hopefully someday you'll see it on the shelves. <laughs> yeah, so we'll look forward to that. And someday if you get there, let me know and we can put a link in the show notes. I will. That would be great. Thank you. One of the things that's interesting that you mentioned is how when you were on the trail, it was difficult to do that much writing. And I've had that experience too. Um, I've written poetry of different kinds in the past and I've done some other kinds of writing. Yeah. And on on hikes, I've learned just to take notes like just to take basic notes yeah. and to process it all later. And partly it's because of what you said before, which is that you're so physically exhausted. Yes. <laughs> that you can't really focus on like sitting down and doing a writing project when what you really want to do is get dinner made and that tent set up and, you know, get into bed or in this case in the van, you know, those, yeah. those kinds of things are just like basic physical 
requirements of life are the things that take up so much of your time when you're on a long <laughs> hike that there's really not much headspace or energy for those kinds of extra endeavors at that time. I know that now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't know that before. I was sure I would write just like constantly and it didn't happen. I even like pitched that I would write out loud potentially like because I had a GoPro that I was able to buy with the grant. And so I thought I would just like walk and talk even, which is like kind of outside my comfort zone in terms of how I normally write. But I wanted to try it. And I don't even think I like really did. I thought about doing it a number of times, but just never got it out. It was just, yeah, it's exhausting. It really truly is. Takes like everything you have to keep pushing yourself forward. <laughs> the other thing you said is that you were hiking with your mother. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. How did it come about that you ended up hiking with your mother? And what was that experience like? Well, so as I said, we've been doing it for a few years now where we go on these smaller backpacking trips. So I think for us, we just kind of wanted to like level up the challenge. And so that was part of it. I also have like historically a pretty good relationship with my mother. We're pretty close. So it seemed not as crazy as people react to it. <laughs> I feel like everyone's like, you're going with your parents? I could never do that. Just my mom, I should say. But yeah, it was hard, I think, on our relationship a little bit too. Like it because we spend so much time together after, you know, not having, even if you spend, you know, a good deal of time with your family, you're still not spending as much time with them as you do if you're with them for all the time for 47 days. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was a crazy thing to do. And I'm not sure I would recommend it, but <laughs> I'm glad I did it. <laughs> so did you come out of that with a stronger relationship despite how difficult it was? Or did you come out of that thinking, wow, I'm not sure we want to be that close for a while, <laughs> or maybe both of those things? Kind of both. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, you build up like a ton of memories together very quickly in a context like that. Right. But it's also, yeah, you're too close and it's a lot just to be together that much all the time and to, and to deal with each other's exhaustion. Right. Like that was the main thing, I think, because for her, as we went further, she got weaker, whereas I got stronger as we went. She started out in much better physical condition. She she spends her summer or sorry, her winters in Arizona just dancing for hours on end uh, for like months of the winter. <laughs> and so she was she was very, very good. She was in pretty good shape when we started, whereas I was probably in the worst shape of my life. The pandemic took a toll on me, I think. And so I went in with only one option, and that was to get stronger. But my mom turned 68 the day we left. Wow. And so as we went, I think things got much, much harder for her. And that resulted in her, I think, not being able as or as able to listen to me even like just carry on a conversation between the two of us as we were hiking because her hearing isn't great at this point in her life she couldn't always hear me she didn't always have the energy to like you know conjure up a response to what I was saying um, and so they're kind of that kind of caused a bit of a rift between us a little bit because she couldn't really hear me and I you know needed someone to talk to because I'm chattier I guess yeah, it just it really strained the relationship in a lot of ways, mostly rooted in that exhaustion, just being so, so tired and in pain. That's an interesting dynamic that you're describing. And it really comes down to just two different generations, right? Like when you're in a situation where physically things are just harder, like for your mother. Mm -hmm. And for you, like you said, you're like a lot of the through hikers that hike the big trails in the US, like the PCT or the, the Continental Divide or the Appalachian Trail, where they 
no, no matter how they start out, pretty soon they're just lean and fit and strong and, and motoring really quickly. Um, but when you get to a certain age, that's not what happens. And yeah. that's interesting to hear that. I'm sort of in the in between those two places. And it's, it's been interesting for me to see, for example, like when my kids would start hiking with me when they were younger, I was always waiting for them. And I have a distinct memory <laughs> of the trip where that flipped. Yeah. And all of a sudden they were waiting for me. And it's been like that ever since. And it's a big change <laughs> and that's yeah. hard to be in that position and feel like you just can't yeah. keep up, you know, or that it's difficult. I think mom has a distinct memory of the exact moment where I started to get ahead of her. Cause she would walk way faster than me. It was actually like, again, part of the struggle between us was that if she slowed down or stopped, her body would kind of start to seize up. And so, and I needed breaks like all the time, like micro breaks, you know, just, a quick one and then I keep going but she hated that she would take like one long break in the middle of the day and then would want to just power through and so yeah that was a big difference but yeah huge generational difference and yeah the moment was when she actually made me take a picture of her because it was like the first time I was walking up a hill faster than her <laughs> and so she was like turn around and take a picture of me right now <laughs> it's like okay if you want so I think she that was like her moment like that where things flipped. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that it happened during an actual hike versus like I'm talking about, you know, a point in life where it happened. That's, oh yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. No, there was a distinct <laughs> moment yeah, that I've captured on, you know, digital film. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about some of the logistics of this hike. When is the time of year to do this hike? Uh, so we went through mid August to the end of September. Uh, and it was, a huge variation of weather conditions. So if you were doing, if you were trying to do it as like a stealth through hike where you're actually camping uh, illegally, but you know, to each his own hike, your own hike. We, yeah, I, I would say that that's like a, maybe too early almost in some ways, but also too late. It's kind of funny. It's a weird window because there was so little water available on the first, I don't know, like week or two of our hike. We saw very little water. There were supposed to be all kinds of waterfalls and they were just dry. Okay. And so I don't know how you would resupply and like filter water for a lot of the hike. That seems challenging to me. I know people have done it. I have friends on Instagram who have done it that way. But I, it, to me, it seems very challenging to do that way. But with the van, we could have water wherever we needed it. Um, so that wasn't an issue. But the yeah, the weather kind of ranged wildly because we went from it being like really hot and humid to there being at the end a lot of cold, rainy days. And so, yeah, that range from like August 15th to September 30th was all over the place for weather. But I guess in the, this is not a hike you're going to try to do much further beyond like early fall or early summer. Yeah, yeah. I think spring might be a good time. Oh, I know some people okay. who have done it in the spring. I think that could work because it's if it's a wetter season, I think you might have better luck that way. Whereas in August, everything is just dried out. It did. The further we got, we did get to see lots of waterfalls, but they were like further up. Um, so the further north we went and like the deeper we got into September, it got, you know, wetter and wetter. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard call. It's it's one of those things to pinpoint your moment. It can be challenging. <laughs> and you said for distance about 900 kilometers or maybe a little more, 911, you said. Yeah, they say 911 in the guidebook. I think we actually, with all the like trail notices that change the trail a little bit, I think it ended up being maybe a few kilometers less than that. Uh, but still over 900, certainly. Okay. And for those of us south of the border, that's 560 miles, roughly. Yeah. And you said August 15th to September 30th. So it was 47 days. The question I had about that, 
is how many of those days were zero days where you weren't hiking at all? Like, did you take breaks or was this pretty much hike every day or how did that work for you guys? So we started out with a plan of six zero days, which seemed like, you know, plenty. But then we started to reorganize my parking plans because we realized we did one 29 kilometer day and that was the longest day we did. But we had originally planned to do, I think, like a 30 kilometer and a 31 kilometer and we just decided after that 29 kilometer day, that's not happening. <laughs> this isn't a sustainable rate for us. Um, and so we changed my whole, the next like 40 days of planning, I think. Yeah. And made all the days that we really needed shorter, shorter. And that, you know, kind of averaged just out to about 20 kilometers a day. But yeah, the 29 kilometers was too much. It was early that we did that. I forget what day it was on. It was pretty, yeah, pretty early, like day one a little over a week in and we attempted the 29 and it just crushed us. Yeah, that can happen. I mean, you just got to change the plan when that happens, which just sounds like you, that's what you did. Yeah. And so we had two days in the end, two zero days off of the six that I had originally planned. So yeah, big difference. We, one of those zero days, we were glad it was, we took it off because it was just pouring rain. And then the next one we took off, it was actually like a beautiful sunny day and we got to just hang out and this rest stop in Beaver Valley, <laughs> uh, which was actually quite a nice way to spend the day. But aside from that, we had a couple of shorter days, um, some like Nero days. But yeah, mostly it was pretty full on the whole time. And so that brings up a question of how difficult is the hiking? Is this a lot of up and down? Is that what made like a 29 kilometer day really difficult? Yeah. So because the Bruce Trail follows the escarpment, the Niagara escarpment, it is almost entirely up and down. Okay. <laughs> there is just like constant elevation change. You're always climbing up it or climbing down it. Or, you know, if you're lucky, you're on top of it for a stretch or under it for a stretch. But yeah, it's a lot of up and down. The highest point is 540 meters uh, above sea level, I guess. And I would say that there's like a lot of you get up to like 400 to 500 quite a bit and yeah and then 540 is the highest but yeah just constant up and down because you're just the trail is designed to follow that escarpment uh and it does that whatever way it can <laughs> okay so i was going to talk about gear next but i think it makes sense to talk about the situation with the van because that seems integral to what you're carrying right yeah sure that's an interesting way that you did this hike because it seems like from the website that I looked at about the hike, I think they're contemplating that people would sort of do some camping maybe because there are certain designated campsites, but it sounds like not very many. Not very But many. then they would also be staying in like hotels and motels and maybe Airbnbs even to make up the difference somehow. And so you guys did a completely different method. So tell me about the van and how that worked. Yeah. So my mom has this great van that she did like a little bit of a kind of DIY build of. And then, like I said, she's been spending her winters in Arizona in it and she loves that. Um, and so we decided kind of shortly, well, actually before she got the van, when she was thinking about getting it, we decided we were going to do this trip at some point. And I thought that it just made sense to do it with a vehicle because we can't, there's not enough places to camp. There's, I didn't want to do any like trespassing or, you know, camping in conservation areas where we weren't supposed to, especially because we had the Canada council for the arts funding. I couldn't very well pitch to the government funder <laughs> that I was going to break the law repeatedly. <laughs> 
So yeah, so we decided to take the van. And the way we did that was we were very reliant on trail angels. Trail angels made this trip possible. Um, So we would wake up before the sun, drive to where we were going to end our day, uh, park the van there. A trail angel would come pick us up from that spot and drive us to where we left off the day before. Um, And so we would just do that weird kind of loop over and over each day. And it was very logistically challenging to accomplish that when you're so tired because <laughs> it's so much organization. I like I, I had a lot of trail angels already on a spreadsheet before we even left because I put it out there in the groups that we were doing this big project and they just loved that. Um, so a lot of people volunteered to like provide rides, provide places to park overnight, just like general support. And so I had that all kind of in a list by section and I would have to get in touch with people kind of a couple days before and just ask them, like, are you available to drive us from here to here on this day uh, at this time? And yeah, and people were really great. So we just kind of did that hopping (laughs) along the whole way from Niagara to Tobermory. It sounds like it was complicated to arrange and you had to do a spreadsheet and all of that. But that's pretty amazing that you were (laughs) able to pull it off and that you were able to get enough trail angels Mm -hmm. to drive you every single day. There were two days where I couldn't find a trail angel in those whole, like all 45 days of hiking. So we took it. That was in, I think, the Sydenham section where there is a far smaller like community of hikers, I think, or that's my sense. And so, yeah, we we found a cab in Meaford that would come get us and do what we needed done. And with that, we did that two days in a row. And then we started finding trail angels again, and it just went back to being every day. So just two days. I feel like that's pretty good. We were very happy with that as a, you know, record of trail angels. Yeah, that's impressive. All right. So now with that in mind, let's jump back to the idea of gear. So you've got this van, so you don't need to bring a tent. You don't need to bring all that stuff. You've got a fair amount of your stuff in the van. What are you actually carrying and what did you need gear wise? We carried what you need to carry for day hiking. I have some things that I like to always have because I know statistically day hiking is actually like more dangerous than backpacking. If you're backpacking, you already have everything you need, right? But if you're day hiking, people tend to forget things. So there's some stuff that like I bring, but I never use like a, like a bivy bag, one of those, like an emergency blanket, but it's a more of a sleeping bag shape. I always bring that with me kind of wherever I go. And then, yeah, it was about bringing enough water, bringing enough snacks, although I have a very low trail appetite. That's kind of a consistent problem of mine when I'm backpacking and stuff. And so, yeah, we carried very limited gear. Once I kind of accepted that I should carry limited gear. Yeah. <laughs> At first, I'm, a, I'm an over-preparer. <laughs> I like to have everything I could possibly need. So I started out with far too much, and that resulted in a lot of back pain early on. So I kept paring it down, paring it down. I stopped bringing my notebook because it became clear that I wouldn't have time to write in it anyways. So I ended up carrying like a first aid kit, that bivy bag, water, food, a few other like just emergency things that I like to have, like a fire kit, even though you're not supposed to have fires on the trail. I just like to have it. Yeah, just kind of your basic assortment of things. And you mentioned water filtration, I think, earlier. So you were, did you just filter as you went? No. So we only had to filter water in the backpacking portion of the trail, which we did in the peninsula. So in Bruce Provincial, no, National Park. I always forget whether it's provincial or national. But so in that park, up at like kind of the very end of the trail, the north end of the trail, there is a section that you kind of have to backpack through unless you want to just like power through it, which I would, would have been too much for us, especially at that point. So we spent, I think, 
two nights in the back country getting through that section and we were on georgian bay at the time and so it was actually very challenging to get to the water the water like the waves were just like crashing oh, wow. up against this rock beach and so i actually spent i think probably a good 10 minutes just studying the water before settling on a spot to go try and like scoop some up to filter because like it was dangerous. It, it was very dangerous. I was afraid to get close to it. I had these dreams of like using my GoPro underwater to like film in Georgian Bay. And I was all excited about that. But there was no way I could possibly get close enough to doing that. The water was not still. It was just like moving and moving. And so, yeah, to get water, I had to find like a nice big flat rock that it was crashing up on top of. And I could get kind of close to that. And then I would scoop when the wave came in. I would wait for the wave <laughs> and then scoop my bag, my like platypus filter bag. And yeah, and that was it. And I had to do that, I think, a couple of times because I could get so little of it all at once. It was it was very hard. And I was worried I was going to get swept into Georgian Bay. It was dangerous. Wow. Uh, but fortunately, that was like the only bit of water filtering we had to do the whole trip. Because, yeah, again, with the van, we were able to just resupply whenever we needed to. How was navigation? How was it getting from one place to another? So the trail is pretty well blazed, uh, I would say. It's a good, well-marked trail, but there are some spots where it's easy to get off. And so having the app is actually was huge. I, like I, We would have been off trail, I think, at least a half a dozen times if we hadn't had the app to kind of help get us back on track. The one thing that was weird about the app at the time, this may have been fixed since then because it's been like, I don't know, like seven months or something. But the little, you know, the little icon that has the like the pointy thing and it's where it represents where you are. And if you turn your phone, it should turn with you. Yeah. Right. It didn't turn the right way. <laughs> it would just kind of like spin around. And so that part, you couldn't just tilt your phone to be like, do I need to turn right or left? Uh, you would have to like actually walk several steps uh, for it to kind of register your movement. And then you'd base it on that. So that was kind of tricky. But I'm hoping they fix that by now. I know they've been working really hard on getting the app improved constantly it has a great reporting feature if there's like a tree down you can report where that is exactly like pin it and everything and yeah so they're they're making it a lot better all the time but at the time when we were hiking it was a little bit frustrating not being able to just point my phone in one direction and know it was the right way but I wouldn't I wouldn't do it I don't think without the app I loved having the app it was good it would like I could calculate how far we had left really easily there was all kinds of things that the app was able to do that I couldn't necessarily do with just the paper map, although I did bring my paper map every day, too. So the app is the Bruce Trail app that's from the Bruce Trail organization. Yeah, they have their own app. Yep. And then the maps, are those from the Bruce Trail Conservancy maps or what map did you use? Yeah, so I've got the nice little binder. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great little book. It's fantastic, actually. It has all the maps. They all kind of pull out. And they're all organized by section. It's incredibly well set up. I, I really love the little binder and the sleeve that comes with it to hold your single map when you're out there in the woods. Cool. It's a great resource. Okay. And so you hike this trail from south to north? Yes, that's correct. Niagara to Tobermory. And I assume that's just sort of the way people typically do it, or that's the way that they expect people to do it? I think there's a lot of variation, actually. I wanted to do it that way partially because I'm a bit of a purist and that's what the badge says on it. <laughs> I really like badges. <laughs> 
And so, yeah, I wanted to do it that way. But I also knew that everyone says the peninsula is a lot harder. And so for me, I wanted to go from like easy to hard. But a lot of people want to do it the other way around and get the hard part over with when they're like fresh. But that I knew I wasn't going to be successful in that direction or I felt I wasn't. So it seemed a lot to make a lot more sense. Although now that I know the trail a bit better, I actually found parts of Niagara and like the early sections to be more challenging in some ways. And that part of that might have been that, again, I wasn't as in good shape at that point. But it was also because of the terrain. There's a lot of stretches of what people call ankle breakers. I don't know if that's like a term that is common, but where the the rocks like you, you have no level footing for like kilometers on end and the rocks shift under your feet. So you like as you're walking, suddenly one will like lurch to the side, right? Like it's actually quite dangerous in places. Um, And so I found that a lot more challenging than some of the places in the peninsula where, you know, it was like a lot of pitted rock, but it wasn't moving. (laughs) It was the movement of the rock that kind of made my feet really hurt and made me kind of stressed out the whole time. So, yeah, I was glad the order we did it in. I know some people who are doing section hiking, which is far more common. People do it in like little pieces and piece together their end to end they sometimes do it in like every which way directions like they'll do one section north to south another section south to north they might do like a little part of a section one way and then the other part the other way Um, and that's partially because people have enough insight into what those sections are like and like you can get that from the community so they might know like okay I'm really bad my knees are bad going downhill so I want to do the uphill way um, whichever direction has more of that and less of downhill so people yeah people will make up their minds kind of based on a number of factors so for people who haven't been to this area what does the terrain look like and feel like and how does it change from south to north generally well you end up like you're in you pass through kind of more towns and cities early on you're a little more like urban but even then there's a lot of conservation areas that you go through but yeah, the further north you get, the more and more like rural it is. And eventually you're like deep in the backcountry where there aren't even road access points for a while. So yeah, it's, it changes a lot. And then, yeah, you're up and down the escarpment. There's all kinds of different terrain just like within that. Like there's a lot of cedar trees that are supposedly like ancient, very old cedar trees, but they're very, they're not that big. And it's because they've just been like struggling to survive on this rock for like I don't know, like hundreds of years or whatever, but they hold the ground together in some places. So there's actually this like weird spongy terrain in some places where you just kind of like bounce, which is kind of fun. But I always think like if you cut down these trees, this would erode completely. And the escarpment was formed by erosion. And so that is like kind of a, a risk that that terrain has to deal with. But yeah, it's it's incredibly varied. There's long stretches of road walking in some places because they're trying to create, they like to call it like a ribbon of wilderness along the escarpment. And to do that, they have to actually negotiate with a number of private landowners. I think it's like a thousand private landowners. And so, yeah, it goes through all kinds of people's private property. It goes through all kinds of conservation areas. It goes through towns. It's incredibly varied. So you start out in the Niagara section and yeah. that seems like it's, like you said, probably pretty close to kind of tourist areas and, and places like that at the very beginning. Yeah. So you're actually in a place called Queenston, which I think is technically like Niagara on the lake and not like Niagara Falls proper. It's like a little bit of a distance away, but not far. Um, we actually did the whole like Niagara Falls kind of tourism thing right before we went. Uh, and that was fun. 
But yeah, so the end of uh, Niagara was okay, but then the end of Niagara, like I said, had all those ankle breakers. And so that got really hard. There was a day, I think it was in Niagara. Yeah, the last day in Niagara, I we gave up a kilometer early because <laughs> I was worried about my feet. They were in really bad shape already. And this is only like a few days in. These ankle breakers just went on for so long. And I was like, if this continues for this last kilometer, I won't make it. (laughs) And so we stopped. Um, And there was a convenient place, like a road access point where we could do that. And mom ended up just walking the rest on the road to the van and then came back and picked me up. And, you know, off we went. But yeah, it ended up being not that bad after that, which was like right before Grimsby Mountain uh, and the switch over to the Iroquois section. Now, wait a minute. Now, how did she end up drawing the short straw there and have to walk to get the van? I don't drive. Ah. So she was the only driver. But I did hold on to it. Like, I guarded the backpack so she didn't have the weight of her pack. And so she just flew down. She didn't mind doing it. We did that a couple of times, actually. There were a variety of places where it just made sense for us to take a little, well, her to take a little bit of a jog to the van uh, just for convenience of parking spots and stuff. So the next section is Iroquois. Yeah. Uh, so kind of more of the same in terms of those hard, rocky surfaces that my feet didn't like. <laughs> um, but there were some, I have a couple of, like, I'm just looking at my notes here, and there are some that say, like, pretty easy terrain day, mostly very easy terrain. So there are, it is, you know, kind of changes. There was some road walking, too, at the end of Iroquois. It's funny when you start out like a weekend trip, you're often looking for the best views. But when you do a really long hike, there's a premium on easy. (laughs) Yes, the easy becomes very appealing. I I definitely heard like the Sydenham section people often say is like tedious uh, because there is a lot of road walking to like connect those wilderness pieces. We liked it. We were like, this is a relief. (laughs) We wanted the break. We didn't mind the road walking at all. There were a lot of places where we were just like, oh, thank God there's a bit of road. There were some other places that are like unimproved road. Those weren't so great. (laughs) Does that just mean a dirt road? Sometimes, sometimes it means like an ATV Uh, road where there's big like pits and like it's very gravelly and not great hiking um especially yeah like hilly stuff there were a bunch of unimproved roads that were places that nobody wanted to maintain (laughs) i think so after iroquois there's toronto and i would imagine that's a bit more urban than most of the hike yeah it actually doesn't go like through toronto it's kind of a misnomer you'd think that there would be sections where you're like actually walking through the city or like near the city but it's not that close i saw on the map that it was (laughs) off to the sort of from the perspective was off off to to the the side side, but i figured it would must be still like more people and more development i actually in my notes for toronto have that it was very buggy (laughs) on like all three days so i don't remember there being that much city i don't think we really did much urban walking i like i have you know some notes about lots of boardwalks okay we didn't see that much like any of toronto really the only time we saw toronto was when we saw the skyline across lake ontario Uh which was actually amazing there were a number of places where you got this just like incredible view you could see the cn tower out there it was just stunning but you never really actually were in Toronto. <laughs> and then you've got the Caledon Hills. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, Caledon, Caledon, Caledon Hills. Yeah. This is actually where the best view or one of the best views of the Toronto skyline was. And it was right near where you supposedly walk by a house belonging to Elton John. Oh, wow. That's the rumor in the neighborhood, at least. That's what people <laughs> say. And so that was kind of cool. We got to see potentially Elton John's house. 
it was a very hilly area. They call it Caledon Hills for a reason. And one of my worst days was in Caledon Hills. I actually really liked Caledon Hills. Like I have a lot of easy terrain, <laughs> but yeah, some of it was very hilly. Most of it. Yeah. One day I just got no sleep in the van. I don't know what it was. I can't remember if it was just too hot or what was going on for me, but I got no sleep. And then the next day we had our shortest day because I just quit early. We had the weather was bad and our trail angel had said, if the storm comes, we'll come get you. Like, don't worry about it. We'll come get you. And so having an out, I think, and like already being tired and not wanting to do it that day, I just took the out. Like as soon as we got back to a road, (laughs) I was like, that's it. I'm done. We did, I think five and a half kilometers that day. And it was the shortest day we did the whole trip. I just couldn't do it. It was the, it was kind of a rare thing. Like mostly I, like I was hardly raring to go necessarily, but I, was trucking along pretty steadily and willing like I don't normally wake up at 6 a.m or whatever absurd hour we were waking up at every day but that day I just I just couldn't do it it was too much for me and I wasn't I knew I wasn't quitting like the whole thing there was never any you know doubt in my mind that we would do the whole thing that day I just didn't want to I was done for that day and I knew I could get back to it tomorrow but not that day. So you said sleeping in the van was hard that one particular night. It made me think of how did that work? How did it work with you and your mom both sleeping in this little van? (laughs) Yeah, good question. Um, So my mom does have a bed in there, of course. But because there was two of us, it's just like kind of a little itty bitty bed. So my mom pees in the night being a 68 year old woman. So she couldn't sleep in her own bed. I had to sleep in the bed and then she put down an air mattress on the floor of the van, which just fit perfectly pretty well. So she could get up in the night when she needed to. I was just like, once I was tucked up in bed, I was kind of locked in because uh-huh. <laughs> she took up the whole floor. Uh, but we had a good system. We built kind of a rhythm around how to get ready for bed and it, it worked and it was her idea to sleep on the floor, not mine. Okay. People always, yeah, kind of give me hell for that, but it was her idea. She has to pee. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then the next section is the Dufferin Highland. Yeah, Dufferin Highland. I think the absolute highlight of this section was this amazing field where there were just like hundreds of monarch butterflies. Oh, wow. It was incredible. We stayed there for several minutes because they were everywhere. The trees were just full of them. They were flying around. It was, it was just remarkable. It was I've never seen so many butterflies in one place other than the butterfly sanctuary in Niagara Falls when we were there, because that's also incredible. If you're going to go do Niagara Falls, do the butterfly sanctuary. But yeah, if you're not doing Niagara Falls and you want to just go on a hike and find some butterflies, find this field in Dufferin Highland. Okay. <laughs> the next section after that is the Blue Mountains. Yeah, so I think the most memorable part of this were like the amazing views of the bay. You can see just forever from some of this section. I think the biggest challenge, but like kind of a rewarding challenge was Pretty River. There's this one, I think, conservation area or park called Pretty River. You get really high up, but it takes a very long time. I think we spent like a full hour just like climbing to get up to the top of this area. Uh, But just so beautiful all along the way. We really liked it in there. And then, yeah, several views of the bay in different places through Blue Mountains. And yeah, just breathtaking how vast it is, especially like when you get to the peninsula and you're actually on the full Georgian Bay, like it's right there. It's just amazing. It's a glorious bit of water. It looks like the ocean. Like it doesn't look like it's a lake. It's it's kind of crazy that it's a lake. Yeah, I mean, it's so big, it disappears in the horizon, I would imagine. Like, you don't, it's not like you can see the other shore. 
Yeah, there's some like little islands you can see in some places, but yeah, it's it's just endless water. It looks like it's crazy. So after Blue Mountains is Beaver Valley. Yeah, so this is where things started to change for my mom um, and things got much harder for her. There were some very beautiful places uh, like the rock formations, uh, especially like Metcalf Rock was really nice. Old Baldy we got to see from below, but not up close and personal because at the time it was on a side trail. I've just learned from a friend that it was recently rerouted so it actually goes across Old Baldy, which is great, uh, which is just like a big cliff face. It's very nice from below, but we had to like walk kind of away from it. And we were sad that we didn't actually get to see it properly. Eugenia Falls is in Beaver Valley, which is an incredible waterfall that we really enjoyed. We were also blessed by, I'm not religious, but we were blessed by two young Catholic priests while we were just like almost at Eugenia Falls, just kind of down the creek from there. Wait, say, explain um, that, that one. Was kind of weird. They were, were they were out <laughs> yeah. hiking or what was the deal? <laughs> they were out hiking and they just came upon us. We, we were soaking our feet in the water, taking a little break and like eating something. And they just came up to us and we told them what we were doing. And they asked if they could bless us. Nice. <laughs> and we were like, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but yeah, the, the big thing with Beaver Valley was mom's kind of shift. And there was one day in particular there where it was just like, we called them like relentless hills. There weren't any like really big hills, but you just never got a break. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that took it out of us. What about Sydenham? So this is when you're starting to get pretty far out there, right? Pretty remote. Yeah, Sydenham's getting out there. Uh, This is where we had trouble finding trail angels. We did see some great stuff, though. Uh, There's some crevices in Sydenham. So one of the cool things about the escarpment is that there's often, like, gaps between these, like, big rocks, right? And so there was this place that, like, I made a joke to my partner that it was, you know, I was expecting to see a young David Bowie in there. (laughs) um, Because it was very much like the labyrinth. (laughs) Yeah, and then there was there's a cool kind of spot in Bogner Marsh uh, that has a floating boardwalk. And I was very nervous about it before we got there because I had seen video from the spring before where it was sinking, like it, the water was so high that it was kind of flooding over top of the boardwalk. And so I was really nervous about it, but we got there and it was totally fine. The water was low. Um, and so that was kind of a neat spot. I have a little video of my mom crossing it and the chains kind of clanking as she goes across And then, oh, Inglis Falls is like an incredibly technical area. We were actually warned by one of our trail angels, like, make this a shorter day because it's very hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it's so technical, but you get to Inglis Falls and it's just beautiful. Yeah, so definitely some technical bits, but also a lot of road walking. So it's kind of some extreme, like one extreme or the other. Um, There was also some places where I actually had to help mom take big steps up in Sydenham. And that doesn't happen very often. We've had that happen a few times in Algonquin. But on the Bruce, I think it was the only day that I had to help her. And I had to help her like four times in a row. There were a number of really big like kind of scrambles up. Yeah, I don't think I've even mentioned the scrambling, but there are a lot of scrambles through the whole trail. Okay. And then you finish the hike on the peninsula. Yeah, so definitely the bay views were incredible camping on Georgian Bay we got to see my mom actually I was I was really disappointed when we got to Georgian Bay because the there was cloud cover and I had been fantasizing for like literal months about seeing the stars over Georgian Bay at night that was like the one thing that I really wanted out of camping there and then we couldn't see anything like it was all just like clouded out 
but then the next day or maybe it was in the middle of the night that day but anyway one of the nights mom insisted i wake up in the middle of the night she went out for her like middle of the night pee and then came back to the tent and was like you need to get up and come out here because you're getting your stars now <laughs> and so we went out and we saw the stars and it was great and then a few hours later she woke me up again <laughs> because she was like you need to see the sunrise <laughs> And that was incredible too. I have some really beautiful pictures of like this kind of steam rising up off the water and like a orange kind of red sky. Oh, so nice. Um, so yeah, camping on Georgian Bay is just incredible. There's a couple of sites there. We were at uh, High Dump and Stormhaven, and those are just great places. The one I think it was High Dump has a really steep climb down to the campsites. And so mom spent the whole day we were down there just agonizing about having to climb yeah. back up because she like her body wasn't great at that point and she was just like i can't do it with the weight on my back and she was like coming up with all kinds of plans she was like we're gonna you're gonna have to like tie a rope to the backpack <laughs> and like pull it up for me and she was fine we did it in like a minute it took no time at all when we actually tackled it but she was just spent so long agonizing over it and i was i, was, I felt bad for her because it was such a beautiful place and i felt like she was kind of missing it because she was so worried uh, but then the other, I guess, some other challenges in the peninsula was definitely poison ivy. Most places that poison ivy appears on the trail, there's like a nice little sign that warns you about it. And I know what poison ivy looks like anyway, so I don't need the sign, but I appreciate them being there. But then in the peninsula, it was just like endless poison ivy. It was like everywhere and creeping onto the trail like you actually could not avoid it. It was going to brush up against mm -hmm. you and you were just going to have to deal with that. Um, and so I just was like hyper vigilant so much of the time that we were there and that I didn't like that like body feeling of being like stressed out about whether I was going to get poison ivy. Yep. We didn't. Uh, but we were very careful about like washing our trekking poles, like the bottoms of mm -hmm. our trekking poles and stuff. Cause we were so paranoid. We actually tried to take off our shoes that day with plastic bags on our hands Pretty easy to take your shoes off, but not so easy to put your shoes back on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have poison ivy out here on the West Coast, but we have poison oak, which is the exact oh. same problem. And there's some areas yeah. where it just grows everywhere. Yeah. We also had to go through some flooded areas. Uh, this isn't quite up in when we were camping yet, but there's a kind of notorious place called Crane Lake Road where it the whole road floods quite a bit. So it's hard to get into the parking lot that takes you to the backcountry. And so we actually like had one trail angel who was supposed to drive us. And she was like, I'm not driving you on that road. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had to find someone else, um, which was fine. And we got, you know, down there, but we got one of the days we were down there. We, well, well, the day we parked down there, it was kind of a disaster because we got stuck in the parking lot. It took us like, I think a couple, like an hour or two getting the van unstuck from the mud on this like terrible rainy day. And then, yeah, that same day, I think we walked through like a ton of flooded trails. So we were just like completely soaked. Uh, it was a lot. The, the rain at the end was <laughs> a lot, but we were, we were more lucky when we were in the back country. We didn't really get any rain then just some cloud cover, but yeah, beautiful spots, definitely challenges, but worth doing. I think the peninsula is like, has a particular draw for people the grotto people love the grotto how did it feel to get to the end of 900 plus kilometers of hiking and be done with this it felt surreal more than anything like it was hard to believe that we were done especially because like our last day was very short because there was only like what is our last day here i think it was yeah it took us under two hours we did 6.7 kilometers on the last day and so it just felt like it just like 
flashed by that last day and we we had some plans afterwards we met with one of our trail angels and like had a nice lunch together uh like a nice celebratory lunch and yeah it was it was nice and like we felt accomplished but it also felt like where did the time go like how did this happen like is it gone like we just started kind of like it was just very weird uh kind of harder to describe kind of a bittersweet yeah yeah, for sure. So why should other people consider doing the Bruce Trail? I mean, this is a pretty challenging, big, big hike, but it sounds like you got a lot out of it. And I just, you know, wh- why is this a trail that other people should think about if they want to do something that's of this length of time? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's challenging. So if you want that type two fun, if that's your bag, then <laughs> go for it. But it's just beautiful. Like so much of it is just incredible. If you like rocks or like if you're a geology person, go do the Bruce Trail. You will get a lot out of just seeing the formations everywhere. Um, I have so many pictures that are just like, here's a cool rock. (laughs) (laughs) Like here's a cool wall of rock. And like the textures of the rock are really amazing. There's like there's fossils in some places. Uh, when we were like doing the backpacking part in the peninsula, I found all kinds of fossils and I made like a little area of fossils. It was like a nice little seat that I found. And I was like, I'm going to just make a museum of fossils right here for whoever comes up next. And yeah, it was cool. There's a lot to see. There's a lot of like wildlife. We saw deer, we saw herons, we saw a ton of turkeys and turkey vultures and just a, yeah, a lot of animals, a lot of beautiful plants. That's just like endless beauty. And the water is this amazing color. I don't think I've talked about this because the limestone erodes from the escarpment. You get this amazing turquoise water. Um, if you've ever seen a photo of the grotto, you'll know exactly what I mean. It's like it's glowing and it's just so warm. Like it looks tropical, which is crazy because it's Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not warm like in the tropics. No, no. So as you look back on this, is there a particular moment or memory that stands out? You know, if you think about this 20 years from now, what are you going to remember? Hmm. 20 years from now, my mom might not be here anymore. So I'm sure a lot of it will be like very valuable to me in that context, like having these memories of her. I think that will prove to be, yeah, very nice to be able to hold on to. I definitely had a lot of moms come and tell me like, you appreciate this time with your mother. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> I got a lot of that. But yeah, in terms of like single memories, it's kind of tough. There's just like so much. Like there was a day that we were followed by a dog. Like I just we were walking down a rural road and a dog followed us and we hiked with it for 24 kilometers that That's day. That's cool. Yeah, it was a cool day. It was a weird day, but a cool day. And we just like we tried to get in touch with the owners. We called the phone number on the dog's tag. The dog's name was Cooper. And so we called them up after a while, like when we realized the dog wasn't going to turn around on its own, which is kind of what we thought for the first several kilometers. Um, so we called them and he was like, I can't come get the dog. I'm sorry. And I, and we were like, OK, that's fine. We'll just take it with us. <laughs> so Cooper went on a long hike. So what happened that you didn't expect? And if you had to do this again or advise someone else to do something different than what you did, what would you say? Hmm. I would say that doing it with a van makes a lot of sense for this particular trail. If you are concerned about like stealth camping and you don't want to do it that way, which is like really the only other way to do it, I think, if you're not, if you want to do a through, uh, through hike. The van is, I think, the way to go. It really facilitated us, you know, having all of our needs met, not, you know, encroaching on places we shouldn't, 
Uh, we parked at like a lot of Walmarts. A lot of the van life community already knows this little secret, but you can usually park at a Walmart and you won't get in trouble for it. So we did that a lot. We parked at a lot of Trail Angel houses too. Uh, even got a couple of real beds every now and then, which was nice. But yeah, I would definitely, the van was a good call. So I would definitely recommend doing it that way if you can, if you have access to a vehicle like that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I probably would have started with a lighter pack. <laughs> Uh, if I could do it over it again. It sounds like you quickly remedied that, which a lot of people do. I did. Yeah, I adjusted pretty quickly for sure. Uh, I did try a smaller pack, like an altogether, because I, I have I have this great pack that I'm obsessed with. I love, I have a Deuter uh, Futura Vario 45 plus 10, and it's amazing. It's so well suspended. I love it. Um, and so I wanted to carry that, but I brought this other little tiny Osprey, Osprey Daylight pack just as like a backup or in case we wanted to do something shorter I just needed to switch it out and so I tried both of them and the Osprey was actually kind of worse because I was just like packing it so like as full as it could be Uh, and it has no suspension it's just like it's a little thing it's not meant for that and so yeah I was carrying my like backpacking pack every day and that was great once I lightened the load Mm -hmm. enough that it was reasonable (laughs) All right, Alicia, thank you for telling me about your hike on the Bruce Trail. It sounds like an amazing hike. And um, But while I have you, I have a few more questions for you. Sure. All right, so what is the next trip on your list? So I am going to be doing Killarney this year, which is the LaCloche Silhouette Backpacking Trail. Um, it's around, like in Killarney, there's actual like mountains. This is in Ontario and there are mountains, <laughs> which kind of blows my mind. And so I'm going with my friend, Aaron, we're going to do, I think, seven nights, eight days, uh, and we'll car camp on either end because it's quite a long drive from here, uh, several hours. So we'll do a little bit of car camping, do the backpacking, do another car camping day and then come home. And yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be really hard. I've never done a backpacking trip quite that long. Uh, I've never done a backpacking trip with my friend Aaron yet, but we do hike all the time together and I just love her to bits. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I think that's going to be great, but there is a lot of elevation change. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that sounds like a great trip. And are you doing it with a resupply in the middle or is this put all the food for the whole weekend? All the food for the whole week, which is going to be tough. That's it's actually why I'm doing it with my friend Aaron and not my mom, because my mom, I don't think is up for doing that level of like a food carry. I think that's a bit too much for her, especially now. I don't know. I don't know if my mom's coming back packing with me again after this, actually. (laughs) We'll see. <laughs> That's funny. You might have like completely burned her out and she's done, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny that you say I that. It just maybe. reminded me, like we used, when I, when I was a kid, we did a lot of car camping. My family wasn't into backpacking and I got into that on my own later, but we did a car camping trip. We had some property in Colorado and we went out there. My, my dad was a school teacher and so we had summers off and we went out there one summer and we camped in a tent the entire summer. Oh. And it was a lot of fun. And it's, I remember it still, I was seven years old and I remember it was the best summer of my entire life. And my mom has not camped a night since she's done after that. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, Very polarized opinions on outdoor life. I know my partner is more of a city boy. (laughs) He does not go in for places without, you know, plumbing. That's right. It's good to have your own hobbies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, true enough. All right. Next question. What is the best backpacking or hiking advice you've gotten? So I like this one. Always eat your favorite food first. Oh, So the idea being, yeah, it actually kind of blew my mind when I first heard it. Because the idea is that people tend to save their favorite food for later. But if you're eating your favorite food now, 
then whatever's left, you're going to eat your next favorite food and then your next favorite food. And it just makes so much sense to me to like always eat what you want to eat and don't try and save things for later. It doesn't make oh, sense. Oh, that is brilliant. And I've never heard that. That's the best answer I've gotten to that question. <laughs> because, <laughs> <laughs> because like you said, every night you're eating the best thing you have, which is cool. Yeah. And you know what? The other good reason to do this that occurred to me as you were saying it is that on a longer hike, at least I get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And I care less and less each night about what I'm eating. After a few days, I don't even care what I'm eating. And so I might as well eat the good meals when I still care. <laughs> and I'm like night four, I would eat just about anything that's edible. So <laughs> wow, yeah, that's very different from me. I have I just really struggle with eating on trail at all. Huh. I have a really hard time making myself eat. As soon as I'm off trail and we can go get like a burger or something, I'm ready to go. I can eat everything. But on trail, I just really have a hard time. So it's good advice for me. A lot of people have that, I think, at altitude, but it doesn't sound like in Ontario, it's not really an altitude issue. It's more no. just the heavy exercise every day that might turn off your appetite. Yeah, I think so. All right. So what is the worst weather you've ever experienced while outdoors and how did you handle it? So my mom and I seem to attract thunderstorms. <laughs> <laughs> I think every backpacking trip we've been on up until this past year doing the Bruce, we've always had at least one thunderstorm, if not more than one thunderstorm. And the very first backpacking trip we went on, uh, that was in Eastern Pines uh, in Algonquin. And I had read, this is like when I'm pretty green to backpacking, you know, and like new. And I had looked up like advice for like dealing with lightning, you know, safety for thunderstorms and stuff. And so we got out of the tent. It, it was like, this is the middle of the night, like very early in the morning, really. Um, and we got out of the tent and we like crouched outside the tent in the rain while the storm was like right on top of us. And since then, when a storm comes at night, we just stay in the tent and hope we don't die. That's what I do. <laughs> it wasn't worth it. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> it wasn't worth being safe. <laughs> yeah. I, I always like kind of hunch up on my uh, sleeping pad and think, okay, that'll insulate me or protect me knowing that really I'm just lazy and I don't want to get out of the tent in the storm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last question. What is the most valuable thing that backpacking or hiking has taught you? Yeah, so I don't think that it's necessarily taught me this, but I do think I'm much more aware of my own level of determination than I used to be before I started backpacking. Maybe a little part of that has to do with the badges that I love so much. Like there's like a physical thing that tells me I accomplished something. And yeah, it's just a good reminder that like I can do hard things. And it, yeah, because it takes just like a ton of grit to get through these trips. Like I love them and it's so worth it for being like just being outside is great, but it takes a lot to be able to pull yourself through a trip like this. And so I definitely think that like I'm way more aware of that about myself than I used to be, which is useful in like all parts of your life, you know? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I do feel like there are times when you're backpacking that you feel like that you just can't do it, but you, you have to. There's, you don't have an alternative. Yeah, there's no yeah, choice. There's no choice. And yeah. you do learn a lot about yourself and you do learn a lot about what you're capable of. Absolutely. And um, I love that about it too. Alicia Rubisha, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was great. Thanks again to Alicia Rubisha for coming on the show. And I hope that Alicia and I have inspired you to hike the Bruce Trail. And if you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it, or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. 
And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Let's talk about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we'll go on a multi-day hike through an incredible diversity of terrain. Colorful mountains, glaciers, volcanic black obsidian, Mordor-like hills, but also valleys covered in green grass and moss. All of this on a very volcanically active island in the North Atlantic, where in the summer, the sun shines late into the evening. That's right, we're going even further north to the land of Vikings. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Lagavegger Trail in Iceland. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode, or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. And of course, follow us on Instagram at trailsworthhikingpodcast, where you can see photos of the hikes that we cover on the show. So start planning your next hike, and before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.